morning, good morning, good morning. It's so good to see all of you here today. So, so very good to see all of you guys here today. Um, I am absolutely pumped that we are now into the third week of the story. We're actually focusing in on the second chapter. And if you've got uh, your actual uh, book, if you're brand new to NBC, we're going through a series where we're trying to help people grapple and grasp the whole of Scripture. And so we're going from like Genesis to Revelation and having like an overview where we're, having to under, we're aiming to understand the storyline of the Bible. And so this is not a Bible, uh, the storybooks that you can get out there at the Hub, it, but it has all the Scripture that we're going to be preaching on throughout this series. And we're encouraging people to, to get them for five bucks while we still have some. We ordered, now we've ordered up to 700 and all but a few are left. So if you want to get your own copy for five bucks, snag one over there. We don't make any money on them. We just want people to have them because we want people to know the Bible. And then we want people to bring them so that you can actually like make notes in them and write, write in them and uh, that would be awesome. So anyway, um, if you've got your uh, storybooks, you can actually go ahead and do that. And it looks like this is, for some reason, my computer is freeze-framing here. I'm going to try this one more time. This could be super, super exciting today. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right, while I'm getting that, I'm going to answer a question that people had from the first chapter. Um, as you're reading through the Bible, we honestly don't believe that uh, you can read God's Word without having questions. If you're reading the Bible and you don't have some serious questions or even uh, perhaps even serious doubts as a result, you're probably not reading the Bible. You're probably reading some other book. There we go. If you want to take notes, feel free to do so. That's all of today's notes and there it's gone. Okay, maybe. Oh, wow. This is going to freeze... We can actually just preach off of that. All right, maybe that's what we're going to end up doing. Um, Benj, I might need you to mess with my computer to see why it's getting so sticky. Anyway, while we're uh, getting that figured out, um, one of the things that we were talking about last week was the beginning of the story of God, the beginning of the fact that, that God created everything. And every, everyone has questions about some one, one particular thing when it comes to the whole account of Noah and the account of even Adam and Eve. And, and that is this, starting off with Adam and Eve. So there's Adam and there's Eve. They sin. They get kicked out of the garden. They've got kids. Who are their kids? The two boys? Cain and Abel. And all of a sudden, um, Cain gets, gets super frustrated with Abel. And what does he do? He kills him. Yeah, he doesn't tickle him. He doesn't take him out to Arby's. He kills him. And so when he kills him, um, all of a sudden, uh, Cain takes off. He like leaves town. And it says that he, he gets married. And everyone's like, cool. To who? Whom did he marry? Who was Cain's wife? Because either God invented some woman, boop, and there's like a woman there, or he, there, the Bible is saying that there were other siblings we're not aware of, which means that Cain married his sister. And then the, the crowd has a resounding icky, right? But it's the same problem we have with Noah. Noah and, and all of his kids. God wipes out all of civilization, right? It's judgment against everything. And it's just Noah and his family. And so where does the, if this is the reset button for the entire earth, where do those families come from? Cousins. So, which has a resounding Icky. And so over and over again, we're like, are you, is the Bible saying that there was like this incestuous relationship from the beginning and that's how humanity got populated? 
Well, if you actually, if you look scientifically, science, science will look and they say that, that biologically we came from a common ancestor. They're not going to say it's Adam and Eve, they're not going to identify, but there's a common ancestor. And so in the beginning stages of humanity, this type of interbreeding and crossbreeding, right with a family, a very tight-knit group of people, was a reality. And so that's something that we know to be true. Scripture accounts for it as well. Clearly, there were other siblings in um, that mix that we don't have an account for. Cain married a sister. So why is it that we have this big prohibition against siblings marrying or, or tight family members marrying today? The reason is because we know that when you have people that are close in family, there's a higher probability that there's going to be some type of um, abnormality or deformation in a child because you have two people with a genetic code, with genetic issues that are really close together, having a kid, there's a higher chance that those genetic problems are going to showcase and show themselves up in, in that child that they have. So why was it apparently not that big of a deal back in the beginning? Well, biology doesn't give us much of an account for that, but scripture does. If in the beginning we have perfection in the garden, and as soon as sin enters in the world, we see a progressive poisoning of the environment, of everything genetically and everything else, we have a reality that there is going from this point on to be more disease, more genetic abnormalities, and so on and so forth, leading to a point where if you have two people that are close in family connection, your good chance you're going to have a problem with a child coming from that coupling. But in the beginning, there was less genetic deformations in the genetic, genetic code. The genetic code itself was more pure, and so that had far less problematic nature. Now, biology will tell us that, but biology won't tell us when it became taboo. Every culture of the world has a taboo against that type of coupling, um, or at least most do. And Scripture not only gives us a source for why that is, but it also gives us the, the point when God said this is, should never, ever happen again, and that's in Leviticus 18, 19 and 20. You, you have the, this new moral code that God is saying, listen, this thing that is pre prevalent in society as far as a family member, you know, this, this cannot happen anymore. There should not be any more of this family member that's this tight, like having that type of a relationship. And so from that point on, we actually see a difference. Okay. Oh, sweet. We're, we're rebooting the whole thing. Awesome. All right. So we're going to go ahead and if you've got, um, we're going to go ahead and talk through chapter two, um, which is getting into the reality that God is building a nation. Okay, so he created everything, and, and Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Genesis account, you see God punishing sin, God, all this wrath, and all of a sudden, in chapter 12, we see this new reality where it's not just judgment and wrath, it's hope. And we see that in the beginning. So if you've got your, the books, uh, the storybook, go ahead and you can turn to chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 12. And um, this is what we see in this passage. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so if you've got your notes, what I want you to do is uh, the, the first, the first um, accounting that we have or the first reality that we have in this passage that we need to understand is how God builds this nation. And the first point is this. God does so with an unconventional choice. I'm now, I am going from my notes now. Um, God's unconventional choice. The way that God chooses to build a nation is radically different from the way that you or I would choose to build 
a nation. He starts off with, with the fact that he does so relationally. It's not simply a power play where God's like, I am all powerful, you're my servants, make a nation. He actually, if, if you look at the, the language that he uses, he uses relational language here. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. This isn't a power grab for God. This is something where he is engaging in a relationship with humanity that is significant and unique. That's not a good sign. <laughs> but he builds the nation relationally, right? That's the first odd thing, that this is unconventional. This deity is doing a relation. That's, that may sound great for us in the 21st century, but it was radically off script for the ancient world. Second thing that's unconventional about God's choice is this. The fact that he chose to start the whole thing with Abram and Sarai, whose names later became Abraham and Sarah. Okay, this is why this... How many of you are, are, are Chicago sports fans in general? Okay. All right. How many of you are Cubs fans? Okay. Sox fans? Cardinals fans? Get out. All right. <laughs> how many... Bears fans? Hawks fans? Okay. Every year, let me just, just talk about the uh, let's, no, about, let's talk about the Bears. Every, for the past, I, I've been in, in Chicago since 95, and what I've learned about you people is this, you never like the quarterback, and you've got good reason. This guy's overpaid, there's always someone behind him that really should be played, and seriously, take this guy out. I can't believe they're paying this guy this much. You're, we're paying you to throw that? Get him out, get the other guy in. And that's been the storyline for 25 years. True? I mean, we, and you, we look at our coaches. Back to Lovey Smith. No, Rex is our guy. He's our, really? Get him out, come on. We would never, ever pick teams the way that Chicago sports teams pick. We wouldn't do it. And every, a person may have never picked up a football or a bat or, or kicked a soccer ball. They may have zero athletic bones in their body, but they're geniuses with how they would build a team, how they would recruit a team, and it would be radically different from what they're watching on the news. Well, likewise, you and I would not recruit the beginning of a nation. If you're God, and you want a success story with your nation, representing you, being a beacon to the world of your glory, you would not do it with Abram and Sarai. For a couple reasons. Number one, wrong age. Wrong age. Scripture says that Abram was 75, okay? 75 when God calls him from, from Ur the Chaldeans out to, to, to follow him. 75, and he totally robbed the cradle because his wife was 65. I think at a certain age it doesn't matter anymore, but whatever, 75, 65. Big, they're not too old for everything, but too old to start a nation? Uh-huh, wrong age. You or I, we would go to a gym, we would find the most athletic dude, the most athletic female, and we would say, that's a couple that has a chance of success. What's God doing? He's down in Florida at the villages. The villages. And he's like, fine, he's recruiting from that. This makes no sense. This couple, would, Abraham and Sarai would come in, they'd be signing up for a LifeBridge event and dropping their kids off at Adventure Outpost Nursery. Simultaneously. It makes no sense. Oh, sweet, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our tech director, Ben Satorius. So wrong age. <laughs> Not only wrong age, they, they also have a wrong health status. Sarai has a pre-existing medical condition. And it's, it's infertility. If you want to start a people group, 
You need the potential to provide and produce people. And Sarai can't. God chooses the wrong age, the wrong health status, the wrong track record. In his omniscience, God knows this is not a couple that is the cream of the crop. They're never going to fail him. He knows in advance they will. Abram would be a liar. He's a, he, some, at, at moments where he needs to step up and step up to the plate, he cowardly claims that his wife is his sister so that the Pharaoh doesn't try to knock him off to get her. Sarai, in moments where, where God, she knows God has promised that he's going to make them a nation, that God will provide a child, she loses patience and says, God's not stepping up to the plate. God's not answering this prayer. So here's what you need to do, husband. You need to go and have a sexual relationship with our maidservant because at least then we know that, that we'll have a child, we'll have an heir. If God's not going to make his promise happen, we will. Wrong track record. So, wrong age, wrong health status, wrong track record, and probably what I find to be one of the most glaring problems with them as recruits is they had the wrong religion. If you're God, you want to fix, you want to find somebody who's actually the right religion, right? True? Abram was not a, you know, I just worship the one true God, and that's kind of my deal. No, he was a pagan. Sarai was a pagan. Their family was pagan. If you're like, man, I, I just feel like I don't know a whole lot about faith and I feel like I'm the odd man out in this service because I don't know a whole lot about the Bible or, or this religion. Maybe, I should, maybe I'm unqualified. Look at what he did with them. He chose people from a wrong religion to be the starters of this nation. Abram's dad was an idol maker. So you can imagine as a little kid, Abram's making idols in his dad's like, you know, wood shop. And that's the guy that God says, yep, you're going to be the one who's against idol, idolatry serving the one true God. Wrong age, wrong health status, wrong track record, wrong religion. But again, this is classic God. We see this over and over again. One pastor put it this way. I love this. When you look through scripture, you see how amazing it is how God chooses. He does not choose the great. He does not choose the strong. He, he chooses some of the most odd ducks you're ever going to find. And, and that, as we go into our story, we see that. Abraham was old. Isaac was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was obnoxious. Moses was a stutterer. Gideon was fearful. Samson was proud. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Mary was a poor teenager. John the Baptist was a bug eater. Peter was impulsive. Martha was worrying. The Samaritan woman had been married five times. Paul had health issues. And Timothy was timid. This was God's highlight reel that he chose to be the heroes of the faith. What kind of a strategy is that? Who would make such an unconventional choice? According to Paul, it's, it's classic God. Listen to him in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the coolest passages. Listen to this. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that, there, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of your track record, 
or your computer that doesn't work. <laughs> it's because of him. It's because of him. It goes on to say, so that no one may boast before the Lord. Why in the world does God have the strategy that he does? Why does he pick the insignificant and the people without, the people with problems? The reason that he does is because he is making a point of his greatness and his glory. And when he chooses us, he reminds us that everything in this world will tell you you are significant and special and you have self-esteem if, if you're attractive enough, if you're a good parent, if you've got a good enough GPA, if you're a good enough athlete, if you have enough friends, if you live in the right neighborhood or drive the right car, if you have a good retirement, these things tell you that you're significant and you're special and you're unique. And the reality is that all these things, as far as things that we're drawing upon for our significance, are empty compared to what God has offered us. This is the, the, the greatest thing. See, we're always, in our, in our culture, we're always trying to see ourselves in the best light. And the story that we have from the gospel through the scripture tells us just the opposite. The very thing that leads to our greatest self-esteem has nothing to do with us. How successful we are, how rich we are, how beautiful we are, how great a parent we are. The greatest self-esteem builder for humanity is recognizing that in the face of of our failure, in the face of our, our, our lack of ability to succeed, that God, in his sovereignty, in his grace, chose us. It's an unconventional choice, but he chose us. And secondly, I think we're just gonna keep that awesome logo up there for the rest of the service so we're not worrying about this. Secondly, not only is it God's unconventional choice, but it's also God's uncomfortable call See, he wasn't just simply choosing Abram. He was choosing him for something. If you were chosen by God, he didn't call you to come and chill. He called you to come and follow. And so we see that in, in, this, in this passage. Go ahead and, again, look at chapter 12. At the very first verse, or at the beginning of chapter 2 in your, if your storybook, it says this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. Go, leave. So let's just put ourselves around what, what Abram is going through. He's established. He has a people group. He has a religion. He has a, a country. He's a, his family's been in the business long enough for him to be established. And God says, okay, everything that you had security in, leave that and follow me. I want you to go. And what we see all throughout scripture is that this is something that calls upon us to have faith. At the bottom of page 14, there's a really great definition for faith, and it's this. Faith is complete trust. True faith is much deeper than mere intellectual agreement with certain facts. It affects the desires of one's heart. And the truth is, is that as we are people that take steps of faith, we actually are stepping into something that is going to be uncomfortable. And, and, and if you look back again, at the beginning of chapter 12, we see this. God does not simply say, I'm going to bless you, end of story. He actually builds on that. And he says this at the very end of that, that, that promise that he gives them, I will bless all peoples on earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's call is this, I chose you. Not because you're qualified, I qualify you, I chose you and I chose you for a purpose. I'm blessing you 
and you are going to be a blessing for the world. And that's not gonna be comfortable because I'm, I'm gonna not call you just to be a xenophobic, racially centric people. You're going to be a blessing to the entire world, all kinds of people, all kinds of backdrops. People with, with great backgrounds and sketchy backgrounds. People who look like you and people who look radically different from you. People who speak your language and people who don't. This is, for the, for all, this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm calling you to take a step of faith and step into that thing which I'm calling you. Now here's the thing. When we look at this, we recognize that not only is, is his calling to be a blessing, but it's also a calling that incorporates suffering. This is what, when, when, if you hear pastors say that when you come to Jesus, everything gets better, they're lying. If you follow God, your world gets like more, less complicated, kind of. The reason it gets less complicated is that you know the reason for the complication and you know the person who's going to get you through it, who's going through it, through you, with you. That is something that we, that we all need to understand and grapple and wrap our brains around. That when God calls us, we're stepping into waiting and suffering and struggling. Do you know how long it was from when God said, I'm going to make you a nation, which by, just means you're going to have children and they're going to be great. You know how long it was from that promise to when God actually delivered? How long would it take for you to pray for something before you gave up? Like if you prayed for something every day or for someone every day, how long before you say, you know what? God is not listening to me. I don't know long, how long that would be for you. But in scripture, in scripture, we see that Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years. 25 years for God to deliver on the promise. And everything that God promised him, Abraham didn't see in his lifetime. There were things that Abraham did simply, he was taking a step of faith simply because the person giving the promise was trustworthy and the call was compelling. He was taking a step of faith. And Hebrews 11 talks about this, this hero highlight reel of people that were people of faith, people that were broken people, people who had family issues like you and me. But these people were people who actually took steps of faith not seeing the payoff in their lifetime. What if God calls you to a life where you're actually going through a lot of suffering? What if God calls you to a life where a lot of it is a waiting game and, and it's, it's developing in you patience? We are people of the uncomfortable call, but we're on mission from God. And, when, and our problem is not the fact that we don't have God calling us. The fact is that God is calling us, but we're not obeying him. But when I, when I meet with people and either share with them my issues or I listen to other people and listen to their issues, the primary problem is a, is a problem of obedience. We choose not to obey because we, we want to do what we want to do. But as Christians, we somehow, we get that lame message and, and that's why when things get tough or when God doesn't answer the prayer that we prayed or when this person still gets sick or when this person dies, we tap out. We tap out because we're like, this is, how, could I, how could I follow a God who lets this happen? When all along, folks, that God that we were following never existed. The God we follow calls us. He chooses us, and he calls us into an uncomfortable call where there are seasons of darkness, but darkness that in which we can still trust him. One person put it this way. Um, God comes to Abraham and says, where, uh, and, and says, I want you to leave. And a Abram says, where do I go? God says, I'll tell you later. Just trust me. I'm gonna give you land. Awesome. Where? I'll tell you later. Just trust me. I'm gonna give you a son. 
How? I'll tell you later. Just trust me. I want you to sacrifice your son. Why? I'll tell you later. Just go up that mountain. And we see in Abram, the call of God is sometimes confusing and difficult, but it's worth it. Abram and Sarah end up having that child, Isaac, and God does ultimately say to, to Abram, it really happened, I want you to sacrifice your son. And through Abram's mind, you got Abram's mind, you gotta be thinking, he's just freaking out, going, how in the world, how in the world does, is this possible? Like, God, this is the very thing you promised me. And the very thing you promised me is you're, you're gonna take it away. And before he actually brings the knife down, God says, Stop. I have a sacrifice already. Do not do this. And, and it's so cool because we, we through the narrator, through Moses, we get to understand a little bit more of Abram's mind. And through the author of Hebrews, we get to understand a little bit more of Abraham's mind. And that he reckoned that either God is going to stop me or God is going to be able to take my, bring my son from death and bring him back to life because he promised me and I can trust him. He wasn't just a murderous father. He knew that God's got something else going on here. And he actually stepped in and stepped into that. Um, you can go ahead and put this next one on the screen here. That I spent my whole life avoiding the experiences Jesus said he would use to make me grow. Bob Goff said this. I thought this was so profound. I've spent my whole life avoiding the experiences Jesus said he would use to make me grow. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you. He chose you. And he called you into an uncomfortable call. But perhaps you've been operating in your faith, keeping at bay, keeping at arm's distance the very things that God wants to use to make you grow. You've been insulating yourself in your Christianity, thinking that God is God if everything is good, if I'm healthy, wealthy, and we're doing great in our finances. Our marriage is knocking it out of the park, and our kids are always obedient, and our teeth are super white. <laughs> that is not the faith of the story we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see God not only making a choice, but calling us into an uncomfortable call. And not only that, but he wraps it all up with an unparalleled covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, or, or page 15 in your book, we see an accounting uh, before Isaac is born of Abram asking God, when is this going to happen? And, he, and he's, again, he's super insecure about this. Look about halfway down the page on page 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Again, God is saying, in the midst of the doubts, in the midst of the confusion, bank on me. I am your shield. Not your circumstances, not what you can see, not even what your wife is telling you. Bank on me. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me, or, and Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. Pause. Do you know how many stars we can see? I mean, not in Manuka. In Manuka, we can see three. But if you went out into like the country or like a national park, do you know how many, how many stars you can see with the naked eye? Astronomers tell us that we can see about 10,000. That's on a good night. 
you could see about 10,000 stars. So what's, what's Abraham seeing? He's seeing 10,000 stars. Are there only 10,000 stars? No, there's millions. This is so classic God too. God gives us a promise. And what we see seems good, seems important, but what it actually is in its entirety is so much greater than we could have possibly imagined. If only we had God's eyes. If only we knew what God knew we would know how much of a blessing it is that he's promised. But Abram said, down from that, um, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver from the un through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave the glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited as him as righteousness. This is what I love, is that throughout Abram's life, you have two accounts of him saying the same thing. I don't get it right now, but my faith is not in my conditions, my circumstances, or even my ability to put all the puzzle pieces together about what's going on in my life right now. I am convinced not of me or my conditions, but I'm convinced in him. I'm rooting my confidence, not in me or my conditions, but in him. And later on, the story doesn't uh, record this part of the passage, but later on in chapter 15 is one of the most amazing things we see. Because Abraham is still saying, but God, how do I know? And then God has him do this, this thing, this weird, weird thing, where he says, okay, here's what I need you to do. Go get yourself a goat, a ram, and a heifer and a dove and a pigeon. And then I want you to take like a machete and I want you to cut them in half and split them and let the blood flow into the middle and, and that's what I want you to do. If somebody tells you to do that today, call the cops. That's just weird. Why would you do that? But in the ancient world, Abraham knew exactly what he was talking about because that was a, a, a ritual called a covenant. And we know, what, we, we know what a covenant is kind of, but we think more of contracts. I sign this contract, you sign this contract. But a covenant was deeper. It was far more relational. But what a covenant was saying is this. We're splitting these animals apart. And the two people in the covenant walk through the blood in the middle. And what they're saying is, if you break your side of the covenant, may what has happened to this animal happen to you. And if I break my side of the covenant, may what has happened to this animal happen to me. Why is this important? Because as the dark, it says darkness descended upon this situation, above the, the animals that were cut in half. Darkness is similar in the smoke, similar to we see in Mount Sinai. God's presence is there. And, and Abraham is watching this, he's observing this. And what happens is God, through the visual of a torch, goes through the animals. But he ends the ritual without letting Abraham do his part in the agreement by walking through himself, which had to be confusing. This is a covenant ceremony. Two people walk through together. Why is God not letting me do this? But I got more questions than that. If God breaks his side of the covenant, how could God pay up on the punishment? How could he assume that? How could God actually be torn to bits? How could God, how could the infinite become finite? How could, how could the immortal become mortal? I mean, God would have to become a man if that was to happen. But secondly, how, how am I going to hold up my side of the agreement? Because I already know I've failed him. This is a covenant where I'm pledging my allegiance to the one true God. And if I fail, 
May what has happened to me happen to the same as this animal. But God doesn't let Abraham walk through what is happening here. God is saying, I'm assuming both sides of the covenant. I will keep my side of the bargain, but when you don't, I will also assume the penalties of your breaking of the covenant. And hundreds of years later, darkness descended on another mountain. When the Son of God, God became man, hung, and in the infinite becoming finite, the pure becoming punished, we see Jesus taking the punishment that we deserved for the old covenant and in so doing, establishing the new covenant. The new covenant which is built and based on his righteousness, on his work, not yours and mine. So not only does God choose us in spite of our problems and our issues and everything else, he calls us into something that's above our pay grade to be a blessing to the entire world. That's why when, when, when we come out of here, what, that, what we are called to not simply come and show up and gather and say, woohoo, we love Jesus, and then go home and live like whatever we want to live. We actually say, no, we have a calling on our life to be a blessing to this entire world, to be a beacon for him. See, God has, didn't stop building a nation with Abraham. He's still building one in you and in me. And when we give, when we give in the offering, we do so generously. Why? Because we're paying God off? No, because we've been called into a mission to, be, to recognize that we're not just called to be blessed, but to bless the whole world. When we do each of these things, we step into the uncomfortable call, but where it's wrapped in the unparalleled covenant that this is built and based on God and what he's done. He's called us to repent and to follow and to watch as he continues to build the nation around us, which brings me to a Pop-Tart foil. Um, I found this Pop-Tart foil this past week on Tuesday. It's very fantastic. It's right here. I know that you are all very amazed. You're like, see, this is why I showed up today. This Pop-Tart foil was buried for probably about 14 or 15 years. I found it underneath the roots of this bush that I, my uh, wife, Julie, and I, we were taking out all these roots, uh, all these bushes that, that had died. And, and these were bushes that we planted way back in the day, uh, back when we first moved in the house about 15 years ago. And as we pulled it up, all of a sudden out of it, I see this. This lonely Pop-Tart foil had blown in there and had gotten trapped. And over time, it just stayed there until on Tuesday of this past week, it saw the light of day again and I unearthed it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I also found this. This is a Lego brick that had to have belonged to Micah about 15 years ago. At some point, either he was playing in the yard or it fell off of the porch and it got trapped underneath the roots and it, was, it had got buried for all these years up until last Tuesday when all of a sudden I pulled the roots up and oh, it's there. Yes, I know you're impressed. Here's the thing. I want you to leave with this reality about the Pop-Tart foil and the Lego brick, and this is it. Every one of us has things that have been buried deep within us for years that have no point or purpose, and yet we think that they're valuable, they're shiny, they're beautiful, they make us feel significant, but they're empty. And you're chasing these things it could be your, the approval of others. It could be some pleasure that just has got a grip on you. But this is deep within and it's doing nothing for God's dreams for your life. 
as Christians, we have the opportunity to say, this no longer has to have hold over me. Jesus has accomplished something where I can repent and watch this diminish its power. But secondly, we also have the reality that deep within us, God has also planted. If you're a follower of him, he's given you something within that he wants to use. He is still building his kingdom. He's building his nation, not just through the Hebrews. He said that this was going to be a blessing for all people and through Jesus, we've seen that. We're here 2,000 years past Jesus 4,000 years past that event with Abraham because the fact that God had a dream to send this redemption, the hope of the world, even to us. And so today, my encouragement to you is simply this. Repent and follow. Repent of the things that are deep within. I, I may never know what you're struggling with and you may never know what I'm struggling with. Even the people closest to you may not know the depths of it, but today, you can repent. You can turn that over to him. Are you not someone who's ever done that? If you've never done that before, you can do that today and recognize that God has got something for you he has that is valuable. This little Lego brick, it's valuable to my family just because it's got nostalgia because it's ancient way back in Micah's day. But it's also something that my kids today can take home and actually continue to build on. If you're a Christian, you've got something inside that you may have been just suppressing that God wants to surface, to see the light of the day and actually use. May our life be the pattern of repenting and following as he continues to build the nation in and through us by way of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Once a month as a church family, we gather around the Lord's table, which is reminding us of the fact that this whole concept was bought and paid for, not by us, but by Jesus. We take the bread and the cup. And so what I wanna encourage you to do is this. In just a moment here, you're gonna exit your row on your left to go to the tables in the back and the front to go on both sides of the table to take the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seat and spend some moments asking the question, what, do I, what have I been suppressing that needs to be turned over to God in repentance? What have I been pushing down that God is actually calling me into that I need to take a faith step in? And be reminded that the fuel for both those decisions is the work of Christ and his grace for us. If you're not a believer, this is an opportunity for you perhaps to make that faith step of crossing over from death to life saying, I do not have all the puzzle pieces. I do not have all the questions answered in my life but I have enough to know that my sin has distanced me from God and I want to surrender to him today. I want to follow his lead. I want to receive the forgiveness only he can give me. And you could do that right now as well. Go ahead and uh, take the morning uh, communion and bring it back to your chair. We'll be taking it together in just a moment.